0: Welcome to GEMS with me, Jeffrey Allen Henderson, designer based out of Harlem. I wanted to connect with folks in the industry who over the years I've gotten a chance to learn from. I wanted to hear about their struggles, their successes, as well as what they're going to do next. So sit back and enjoy, and I hope we all learn something. Good things. Hello, everybody out there. Um, Joining us today on GEMS is no matter how much she told me, I was saying it right. Two seconds ago, I'm gonna say it wrong. Swati Arkade? Arghade, Swati Argade. Am I getting it close?
1: Perfect.
0: Uh oh, she disappeared. Okay.
1: Wait, oh, I'm not here. You
0: can't hear me. Uh, oh no, you're here. You're here. Okay. So, okay, okay. Swati, I'm pretty sure we met through a friend who said you two should meet because you're creatives. And I had no idea who Swati was. And then she was super friendly from day one. Um, On top of the many things she does, she was teaching a class. So I joined the class and I thought that's what her main thing was. And once I started doing my homework, I realized she had this entire world of ethics in design and creativity and fashion and a store in Brooklyn. And I was just amazed. So we don't really talk enough. So here's my chance to sort of get to know more of what Swati's so thinking and what she's doing, and please tell us who you are.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Like, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you better um, over the past year since um, our mutual friend introduced us. Um, and um, so I have been working on this little island of sustainable fashion in on the um in the greater industry of fashion um for close to 17 years now i started out um actually as a filmmaker working um on a documentary in india i just finished up my um my film degree at berkeley and um I was like making this like little film and I was just going, oh my God, like the equipment is so heavy, and I, like these <laughs> long evenings. And I found myself at um I thought at the time I was traveling through India and I was really interested in this idea of toil and labor, which is kind of like what you do when you're in graduate school and you and you think mm. about all of these complexities around work and class and production and um i found myself in a little village in india um where there were weavers there and the weavers the textile weavers the textile artisans started telling me the stories about their families how they had been making these fabrics and these textiles for centuries but in the modern day um it's been very difficult to find markets um, for these fabrics because of like the changes in how people dress um and at the time i said oh my gosh how can that happen these 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 objects are so incredibly beautiful let me make something out of them so it turned out that at the time i had some family friends that were were actually running a fashion college a very well respected fashion college in my family's hometown in pune i'm ethnically indian both of my parents were indian i should also say that okay but and where, you I grew up in California I, I did not I went to graduate school there but I was born oh, okay. kind of like you I have like Midwestern roots so I was born mm. I was born in um the suburbs of Detroit and then I headed south when I was um you know um, a preteen because I think you also ended up south in Georgia too so uh,
0: exactly I was and, Ohio to Georgia yeah and I went toward in Indiana
1: <laughs> and I went from Michigan to um North Carolina but um so I made these first pieces of clothing, and then I came back and to, to New York City, where I was living at the time, right after graduate school. And it turned out that, like my friends, and when I would go out to parties, like all of these people are responding to these, like these clothes, these clothes that I had made out of these textiles. And and ding, 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 ding. I was like, well, there's a business idea that um, mm. I didn't anticipate. Here I was, you know. Exploring, you know, as a filmmaker, and it, and it, I took like a total detour, you know, just to start making clothes. And 17 late years later, I'm still, I'm still here. Shortly after that, I started a business. I was wholesaling my collections. Um, you pivoted I did that before for...
0: people knew what pivoting was.
1: Exactly. I did. I did. And it's like, it's become this word that is so much in our in our vocabulary, especially in this in this crazy time where mm. adaptability is is everything. Um so yeah, so and so fast forward, you know, those that feeling of wanting to do right by the producers, wanting to make sure mm. there was markets for these products has stayed with me throughout my entire career and um the various entrepreneurial journeys that I've been on. So and so that's sort of like how it started. Um, and I've um, I've started a couple of companies in the meantime. I've had many collaborations over the years. and um, and now I am very much in the intersection of education, environmental responsibility, and entrepreneurship. and And we do all of this through the space of fashion. so so that's a little bit about me and my career journey.
0: That's dope. And your shop, uh, is it Boomki?
1: It's Boomki, yeah. And okay. Boomki means um of the earth. It's kind of a word slightly made up. Bumi is um <laughs> well it it's like what it 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 comes from um the phrase Bumi Ki, which Bumi is how you say Mother Earth in Sanskrit and many other Indian languages, and Ki means of in Hindi, which is you know considered the the national language in the north people will say it's the national language in india and um so boomiki key was just too much of a mouthful for our lazy american mouth <laughs> and i don't know i really believe that two syllable wor- words have the most impact you know what i mean so That's, so we just shortened yeah. it down to to boom key so there's and, um, and I always knew that, you know, the iteration, my first line was, you know, like so many designers, you know, back when I, you know, started that first fashion line using the work of those artisans. It was an eponymous line, it was Swati Argade, And um, for this, um, and then I, I ran that line for about, you know, six years. But when I started Boomkey, I didn't want it to be about me, the designer. I wanted it to be about something larger. And I wanted the mission to be about the people that make the clothing and the planet. I wanted it to be about collaboration because I mean, as you know, mm. when you design something there are so many people involved to bring it to mm. life. And I wanted it to be about this experiment of how we can make things meaningfully and responsibly. In fact, the mission of Boomki is um, to create and curate find products in an ethical fashion for the planet and its people. And we've always just tried to stick to that through everything that we've done in our little um, experimental retail and design lab in Brooklyn
0: first of all i love the name i think uh one of the things you learn when you land on nike campus is that um nike the name which was came from a dream from one of the early employees that it just matched up with with linguists called something uh something you can remember because it was nike so it was something with a hard uh consonant as the second um syllable so sort of just make something that you can remember but also i love the fact that uh when we often talk to people about branding something we often say just unless you have something specific and you want it to be your name make it something that everybody can be under um as opposed to one person because then everybody can fit under that umbrella um that you're building and they can take part as opposed to always trying to figure out how do i make this right for you because it's under your name so love kind of where you landed i think uh with the title but i think your conversations around the people that help create every step of the way not just create the product but anybody who's shipping delivering um, stitching anything together uh, those are all people who play a part i think for me i know i didn't learn that until i was at nike for two years before i went to a factory trip and it was in indonesia and i would make revisions and changes didn't really think much about it and then just kind of went about my business and people would tell me well if you make this change it's hard for the stitcher and it was all like this very abstract thing until i actually got to the first development center and i watched people actually run away with drawings and come back and make tweaks and still it was a little abstract until i got to indonesia and I went to, I remember the factory was Hasi, and we looked out onto the factory floor, which was like football fields long. And engineer Eddie Minas looked at me and he goes, When you make a change, every one of those people down there have to make a change. Just remember that. And that stuck with me. Like I can still see all those people, and it's like, whoa, that's a lot of responsibility. But it sort of makes you feel like, okay, there's other people who are part of this conversation. So. I, I, like
1: I love that story, design. Jeff. Like that's um, and I, I don't think your experience is uncommon with most designers um, that work um, in the West and are relying on um, workers in um, in developing countries uh, to to produce our products. So it's like it's a story that I've heard many times. and for me, um because I started out meeting the people that made the cloth um, i started from a very different mm. place so mm. so when I, but what you're what you're describing is um, is something that happens to most designers and you're lucky in that you actually got to go and see that mm, um, yes. and i think i think that is i think that was a unique experience and you know in some of our other conversations we've talked about you know the supply chain and i think what's important to remember about the supply chain is that there's a human aspect to it i think like when you think supply chain it's very abstract and you right, think about right. it in terms of economics but there is actually a human boxes
0: chain. on a page yes
1: exactly it's like very like you know where's the bottleneck in this whole yes, like process
0: exactly exactly but there is the people hum- what
1: yeah exactly <laughs> like, there is the human supply chain and i think one of the things that we've been thinking about um With my team and with um, other colleagues and friends that I have working in this space, is what are the changes that are going to happen because of this this crisis that we're in with the global pandemic? Mm. And because what's happened is that we're all on pause. You know, there are very few factories that are in full operation right now. Um, Right right now, for I mean, my my expertise has been in India, and India has been in Mm. lockdown since, I think, March 24th. And the the prime minister has just extended it to May 31st. So it's giving us a time to really think about, like, who are the people that are being affected by this, the humans that are part of this massive production process where there are just so Mm. many people along the line.
0: So given the thought that there's so many people sort of in this scope of you know, supply chain where there's lots of boxes on the page, um, where is the focus? So example for you, for example, um, watching uh, Hasan Minhaj, uh, Patriot Act, he kind of brought up uh, in his closing last year that there's so many things that you could be thinking about that sometimes it's overwhelming. And we're human beings, only so much capacity to really process or even act upon uh, kind of what's going on. So for you choosing sort of an area of focus, like um, w- how do you choose where you're going to put your energy towards?
1: Um, that's a really good question. I And I think it is overwhelming. And I, I love that episode on the Patriot Act on unethical um, fashion. I thought it was a great mm. episode yeah, um, yeah. because for me, it is about how do we simplify how do we focus how do we find that thing in this whole process where we can make an impact my um, my place has always been about the human element I think that we have we can't separate the environmental impacts of fashion from the human element of it um, like you can make you can make something super organic, you can make it out of organic cotton, they can have a very low carbon footprint in terms of its production process. But if the person that has been, the person that sewed that fabric or like cut and sewed it and assembled it was not compensated properly, then then how ethical or how good for the environment is that? When someone is not getting a fair wage, is not able to educate their children, is not able to get healthcare, is working so many hours. So, and because like I said, you know, my roots started out with like, how can we create markets for workers that might lose their livelihood, it's always been about how can we support workers, you know, to make sure that they can continue to operate. and at the same time i've been very focused on working with artisans around the country and around india um, and in other collaborations like in africa and and South America, but mostly in india where i've been able to to look at their production processes and seeing what kind of dyes they're using like because when you're using mm-hmm. so if you're a worker right and maybe maybe you're we're working on the compensation, but if you're working with um with dyes that have high toxicity that haven't haven't had a proper certification to make sure that there's low toxicity, then that is going to impact you and your family at home. And we've seen what kind of um, what what the global supply chain has done in our greater reliance since the early 90s on um, developing countries and cheaper labor and our our appetite you know sometimes insatiable appetite insatiable appetite for for cheap clothing we've done all of that on the backs of 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 global cheap labor right and
0: people you can't see people that
1: you can't see you know and and i think so much of what i've the work that i've done is like how can we make those people less invisible how can we make them more visible so they are not visible and we've also seen that anyone that works for example Near a dye plant, you know, where there is, or near a denim plant, as we know, like denim is one of the most destructive industries on the planet because the amount of um, water that's used, and a lot of the water just um, falls off, falls out of the the process, and goes right back into our water supply or the water supply that is in the the adjoining areas. But if we can find a way to um, make sure that the people in those areas, you know, the those kinds of experiences that are not happening. So so some of these workers, if they work in a near conventional cotton field, there's a much higher incidence of cancer, respiratory disease, the, the mortality rate is very high. So I don't think a lot of people think about like when we're, when people are producing those clothing, how that is actually impacting the land and the environment of those countries as well. And so I know you asked me to think about the focus, but I don't I feel that what's going on in sustainability, the environmental impacts is very much rooted within race and class. And we know that people have the worst health effects, the most deleterious health effects when they are in a a place where there's unfettered regulations. No one's thinking about regulations with mm. water and the environment and where is that usually happening? That's usually happening in our most disenfranchised communities. Here in the United States as well. So, right, so, right, I, right. I, so I do think it's very hard to, to, to separate the environmental impacts or the environmental disasters that have happened in, on the planet from the workers that have been involved with disasters that come out of like industries that, where there's no regulations. I mean, and oftentimes there, I- there's not a lot of regulations happening in these countries.
0: Right, right. But I think the thing that I think you touched a crucial point is I think when I hear most conversations around um, sustainability or things that are positive and it's all environmental. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is missing the point of part of us making environmentally friendly is so that people can actually live in that environment. And so you just saying that sort of makes takes me back to like, there's a lot of, well, we can't make product that ends up in a landfill. While that's true, part of the reason you don't want that is the toxic nature or the foreverness of what ends up in that landfill because you're thinking people might live there. I mean, and if you go look at people and find out what's affecting them, then that probably changes what your scope of what you're creating, whether you're a business or a designer or a developer or anybody else in the supply chain, it changes your decisions. And I think Focusing on the people is a strong sort of measure of uh, what's right and not necessarily what's wrong, but what's a better path to take.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and again, like when we focus on the people, we think about well, how are people living? Like, where are they living? How are they living? I mean, are they living near a power plant? Are they living? Right. <laughs> are they living near landfills? Like what is happening where there people are allowed to build a power plant where people are living what is that what are right. what are those things and we know we know what how those decisions are made you know those decisions are made right, about where right. those disenfranchised communities live so I think it's so hard to separate, you know, the people on the planet mm. from sustainable, you know, within within this the conversation around sustainability. And I do find that it is a very privileged conversation to have when we're only talking about the environment and not the impact that it has right. on the people. And not
0: the people. Yes. That's very, very true. I think my last trip to China, of which like over the years of sort of like I've seen China enough to watch this wild roller coaster of it went from not having a lot to almost overproducing and not caring to watching a factory owner and this was sort of like a bizarre thing that i sort of with a bunch of different people sort of like hinted you know it'd be better if you did xyz abc and we go into a factory in now a more rural town because most of the factories in china were spread along the larger cities more coastline and since they've moved inward and by all means nothing's perfect but when i'm in the factory i noticed that the employee was different and they talked about how now that it's moved to uh inwards into rural towns they my my first question was like can i see like where people are living and like what the arrangements are like and they looked at me and they were like oh this isn't like seven years ago which was just seven years ago, like, no, there's no dorms here. This is like people drive in, they come to work, they go home. They were like, do you want to see the daycare? And I was like, the daycare? And they walked me through. Like, It was the most bizarre sort of like, and I was worried because I was like, can I record, can I film this? And they were like, oh, yeah, please, like record, record away. And I kind of had that, are you sure? Like, do you want to check me? Do you is there security? And I realized that I was in this giant major factory that wasn't a major brand. So they weren't worried about anything getting out in terms of the product leaking out so people see stuff, so then the only concern would be, are they worried about us seeing like the actual factory and they weren't at all because I noticed it was pretty clean, but then they started walking through if you want to keep employees longer, um, if you want to make them happy if you want to if you want to sustain a business, you have to do things the right way and this wasn't like a sales pitch because this was a factory I wasn't supposed to show up on this trip. this was literally just a drop in because there was another factory that they had and I showed up and it was business as usual. But the fact that there was a daycare and some other features meant that they sort of said the people need to be happy or we can't make scale. Like that was their real thing. And so I think the more people think about the people than those, I think, whether it's environmental or just concerns about uh, whether the education is there becomes very important to make sure product gets done uh if it needs to be done so again it goes back to i think your strong point of the people Mm -hmm. i think it's very impactful
1: that's so interesting because you know one of one of the things they say about fast fashion and and major companies is that they're always chasing the cheap labor and china has actually Mm -hmm. become a very expensive place to, to produce, exactly. and <laughs> they built the middle class. They built the middle class, and um, and the middle class has um, grown because of global reliance on Chinese manufacturing and innovation. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy to hear that story because um, it also re- it also shows that people are trying to do good things everywhere in the world. And and you know we point our fingers at various countries and nations to say well this is how they're doing it or they're giving manufacturing a bad name but i do always feel like you know people are doing good things like to use your to use your motto and um (laughs) and i have a story from you know from my first line you know my eponymous line the reason i stopped producing that line was because i saw a factory I had, and I think um, I think I might have told you this story, and I think this story you can find it in very places, various places in, in, on the internet, because I think it really gave me a pause about what what was happening to fashion at the time, and this was about 2007 or 2008. Um, I was producing uh, my line for about like 200 stores globally, and I was um, wanting to work with this beautiful painted leather craft that comes from. Um, Bengal and India. It's a, something called Shanti Niketan. It comes from a place called Shanti Niketan. And it's this painted leather. And But I knew that I had to produce a lot of it, and I wanted to find um, a leather producer who um, could deliver an on time uh, quality product and um so a friend of mine was like oh well these guys are some of the best leather producers in all of india you should go and meet with them and have a conversation so i walked into this showroom it was the kind of showroom that you would see you know on 7th avenue in new york city or in paris or milan it was so beautiful and you saw all of these gorgeous bags like bags that you see on the pages of glass glossy fashion magazines you know Mm. and um i was like oh my gosh like they are Putting, they're making bags for these, you know, these major global brands, and <laughs> I would love to see how these bags are made. And they're like, sure. And I went to the back, and it was all children making the bags. It wow. was all children. And um, I went back wow. to my hotel room, and I I fell ill and i thought to myself if you have to do this to become a multi-billion dollar fashion brand i'm out i'm not doing this anymore if this is what it takes yeah. that these are the sacrifices that we have to be make to be in the pages of vogue or whatever the glossy magazine is i'm i'm done and yeah. um, so to hear your story about how people are trying to do it right, and for me to go back to that story where there wasn't even like a self consciousness, right,
0: right, there wasn't that was there uh,
1: wasn't even like a self consciousness. I mean, I that one, the story I'm telling you is from you know 12 to 13 years ago, and 100 percent right. the ideas and the views have completely changed. People have embraced. Sustainability, not as much as we'd like for them to, but within fashion, there's much more of a self consciousness because people are afraid they're going to get mm. caught.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's a element of like I don't want to look like I'm doing wrong. It's not that I want to do wrong or don't want to do wrong. It's just I don't want to look like I'm right. doing wrong.
1: And I think like those major global brands, and I think I think you're right. That's a part of it. That's not. I don't think it's just that that people don't want to get caught, but I don't think people were questioning it as much at those right, times and and right. now when you, there's been plenty of factories that i've gone to in india where people are doing it right like the factory that i partner with they offer child care mm. they offer health care they don't um there's a cap on how many hours they make they make overtime like they have these beautiful factories they're not crowded there's multiple exits you know so there has been a change i do feel that there's been a major change and but a lot a disaster disasters had to take place like um in April of two thousand and thirteen Rana Plaza um collapsed in Bangladesh. Collapsed. And um right. almost two thousand people died and um thousands more were injured and you know, brands that we know were producing in that factory. And it took a major disaster for that to happen, for there to be a major shift, a major industrial shift within fashion to say, hey, this is something that we need to look at. We need to have more vigilance about the subcontractors that we're working with. I mean, you've worked at Nike. You, you know how many subcontractors there are along the supply chain? Yes. Right? Like. Yes. yes. I would be curious, like, how many subcontractors are there in the production of a shoe? like an, you know,
0: uh, the one thing that was so there was a report that came out and you would know this better than I did um, around uh, they were giving out report cards to major brands on what they were making. And um, I think Adidas scored really high. Nike scored pretty high. Um, a lot of the major, um, say, sportswear brands scored really high. and The ones that scored really low were the luxury brands. And their example was that because the major uh, sneaker brands had gone through the big issue when uh, Phil Knight opened up the doors to the factories, which is basically like shed light on the problem, even if we're doing wrong, like let everybody catch up because we'll be fixing it now. Um, They had gone through the effort to make sure not only the factories they were working with, but their vendors and their suppliers and everybody else along the trail supply chain were also doing correctly. And that had never happened in luxury luxury was hit worse than what was happening in fast fashion because they just didn't have the people to kind of check and see well where was the leather supplier that you inspected getting the varnishes or anything else along the way and when they went and checked they were like "Mm, looks like they're not actually inspecting they're not going all the way down to the end of the pipeline Um, and i think that sort of what happened in the sneaker industry i think is sort of I think the mindset change. Again, I think a lot of this has to do with some people just do what they showed up. When they showed up, something was like this and they didn't question whether it was right or wrong. They just kept doing it. And that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just means that they didn't really have the where for all to go. If I walk into a room, the light's on, should I turn it off when I leave? The light was on when I got there. I should just leave it on. And I think a lot of that um, comes from at least, and again, I'm talking about my home and the sneaker industry that was definitely um some push before that like light got shined like in probably this is probably 2002 because i remember getting on planes and like people were like oh you work for nike it's so terrible so terrible and going well we're kind of doing something and then when the pretty much everybody got exposed no one talked about nike anymore uh, they did for a few years but because nike went out of its way in a combination some of it was pr of like look what we're doing the factories who were making big money were like, "Oh, if we want to ride this PR train, then we need to clean up our act." Fast forward, I think it's just become the norm. Like, it's not even the I'm trying to clean up anything or I'm trying to do it just for PR. It's when I walked in, this is these were the rules, so I just need to play by these rules because somebody put them in place. I think it is that have you advanced the rules beyond where they were placed ten years ago, twenty years ago, three years ago? Um, I think that's sort of an important task um, to keep our eye on, because that's the part that for me, and I guess a bigger question for you is like, where in that supply chain mix do you see, especially with, um, I guess in two cases, one with larger brands, um, where is the capacity to cause change? Um, And then in smaller brands, like what is their potential? Do you see something that's obvious or Um, an effect can be made?
1: In large brands, well, first of all, I think the large brands, if they can make major changes, they're going to make the most impact because of scale, mm. you know, and right. for example, H&M is the largest consumer of cotton, <laughs> conventional cotton. Mm. And, um, and you know, and I'm not trying to like, you know, poke at H&M right. because they have a major, right. they have. They have They have major production issues. They have tons of inventory. They burn billions of dollars worth of inventory and they have in the past and they've come under fire. Mm. But if um, if they were to only use organic cotton, only use organic cotton and just decide not to use conventional cotton, it would completely change the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world Mm -hmm. um so just making a decision like that can really change things or even if like they had a goal to say we're going to just make sure that 50 percent of it is going to be organic cotton um i think with um i think with these large fast fashion companies we have to we have to get away from the the traditional fashion calendar we have to get away from the where the where you know buy now wear now model which they have been they have perfected so beautifully with Zara you know where they're able to see something on the runway Mm. and they're able to replicate it within four months with the traditional fashion calendar we've seen you know generally it's about you know two to four seasons but with H&M Zara with these massive fast producers they can come out with like multiple collections like every month You know, just for this insatiable need to be putting out new product. And I'm hoping that these larger brands like, you know, we're looking at, I mean, Forever 21 is now declared bankruptcy. But, you know, we're looking at ASOS and H&M and Zara, some Mm -hmm. of these larger brands, if they could just say to themselves, like, maybe we just need to produce less maybe we don't need to right, be filling right. the store with new product every, you know, 4 to 6 weeks. There's a great um white paper that came out um with HBS um some years ago about how Zara does it, and I remember like reading that paper. I think it was about 10 12 years ago about how they've been able to perfect getting new product out. And now 12 years later, you look at that paper and you're <laughs> and you see
0: right they can get things out in six what, weeks. And what like, a problem uh, that is, that and,
1: and it's just the mindset—the <laughs> mindset around that that process, right. which was, you know, held up to be. Look at this incredible manufacturing process, and how what a well-oiled machine Zara has been. And to to to, to have some perspective on that, um, twelve years later, is to see how how destructive that model has actually been. Um, I think I think we could start with that. I think we can start with like the fabrication that these companies are using mm. after deciding to get out of that fashion um cycle and right. um and just deciding mm. to make less. Do we need all of these stores? Yeah. I don't think so. We're all look at us. Are we are we shopping right now?
0: <laughs> I think the wild byproduct of that six weeks to market that do we need all this product um i saw it which was odd is that for me i sort of witnessed it i had no interest in it it didn't really affect me but then when it started affecting me is that when i started looking at designers portfolios or what they would say is that there were plenty of jobs that they could get at those you know fast fashion houses because it was just a quick turnaround of find out what's already selling and just duplicate that and get it done and people were making good money and i was like but that's not sustainable not from a environmental sense but from a if our if you're a designer and you're only learning to like take something knock it off and make it quickly that's not sustainable as like a job resume like it just didn't factor in my mind so i've talked to most designers like you should probably read up and work on something that's a little more evergreen once you create it so that it lasts for more than just six weeks because that doesn't seem like a good idea so it even affects downstream in terms of the people who are working on the product like their abilities and their skills
1: 100 percent. and and that's a really interesting point that you bring up is how can we empower workers and or partners production partners to grow mm-hmm. i mean what i mean for me you know a little aside it's like, what's the point of being human if we're not changing and developing, growing and, and getting better? I mean, that's the capacity mm. that we have as being yeah. human. So why not pass that on? As we make newer, more innovative product, why not pass that on to our artisan partners or our production partners? So I, I love that that idea. And, you know, and, and there, um, there was in China, one of the things that was rampant and also like in other countries, but I remember reading this case study specifically um, in China, which is this idea of piecework, where the same worker only deals with one piece of the production and that's what they finish. So if that one worker is only like mm. working on the sleeve right. and that's all they work on right. over and over and over again, yeah. they're never gonna be able to learn how to figure out like how do you put all of these other pieces together? And,
0: right, or even understand exactly. the big picture.
1: Exactly, and so that, so what you're saying, it's just, you know, here we are, like there's the designer working in this fancy office, like somewhere in this like large sophisticated city and not realizing the way that they're designing just to come back to your point of how it affects the person, you know, sitting at the, sitting at the machine. So
0: what do you, what do you think of? um, So one of the thoughts I just had was just based on there's big companies that can sort of execute against uh, I've always heard, like, if they make a small change, they'll cause huge, uh, changes around the world small companies typically have to make big changes and i think it was when i was working on the project with everlane i sort of understood okay they want to make a i love how you think everlane
1: stable, is, is a small yada. company i guess after coming from nike well
0: <laughs> oh i just i just had exactly i just had a conversation with like i came from like a place where three hundred thousand was sort of like oh you did okay this season <laughs> like so making something that's sort of like 3,000 units, like, um, why are we really here? Um, but what was really interesting about when I started listening to their conversation, it wasn't the idea of making something sustainable that really jarred how I thought. It was the fact that they said, well, let's go all in, like, let's go for 100%. Like, even if we don't make it, even if it's not there, let's go all in. And I thought that sort of grandiose statement, even though we may not have gotten there, everybody on the team was on the same page and it drove everybody to just ignore what other other properties that might be out there if we're not accomplishing this goal then why are we thinking about it and i thought that just having this grandiose goal um sort of like Kennedy, let's go to the moon like it's sort of like oh it sort of empowers people to say we're going to make a change out of high water i think that's sort of what i'm seeing now in the age of like
1: COVID. And I think like when you sort of have that pie in the sky kind of goal where you're like, "I'm we're going to make this all sustainable, you're not going to be able to hit all the marks, but you know what the marks are. Right. And even if you, and, right. it's, and oftentimes, I mean, even in my own practice, I haven't been able to hit all the marks, you know? Um, mm. I mean, I do my very best, but, you know, and having been in this space, like I've, develop the experience to figure out like what works and and what doesn't you know for example like you know i want to use natural dyes all the time but at the end of the day the my consumer Mm. is not going to be loving it after she's washed it like 10 times for example you know what i mean it's going (laughs) to really really change i mean so certain things that you are limited by in that but as long as like we're just trying to get there a little by little through innovation um I mean, I actually think it needs to be more than little by little, but I think that, um, mm. that's important. I mean, me, I am a much smaller company than Everlane. Um, and, but the great <laughs> thing about being small is that you can pivot, coming back to that word, you can move quickly. When you're small, mm. you can be fast. You don't have this massive machine what? dragging you down and keeping you from moving quickly. And, you know, for me in my own business, um, I have a store um, and we're talking like, you know, a small business. I have a store. I have like five employees. I have a studio. um, I have um, two or three factories that I work with India. And like I have various production partners, Um, you know, and we're producing thousands of products a year for sure. But with COVID, I'm looking at Okay, how are we going to start making multi-seasonal clothing? How is that how are we going to make that into mm-hmm. our focus right now versus mm-hmm. you know, let's think about like, you know, a higher-end luxury brand. Let's like talk let's talk, you know, since we're talking about sustainable design like, you know, Stella McCartney, for example, you know, how is she going to really be able to pivot with all of the luxury goods that are out there? I mean, luxury the luxury good market is is going to be dying because who's really who really needs to be buying gowns and you know, fancy clothing? Nobody's going anywhere, <laughs> you know. Yes. So, yes. so whereas like yes. my entire production for March, April, and May was like wedding dresses, Mother's Day dresses, graduation dresses, wedding guest dresses,
0: and oh, wow. I
1: had to, um, I had to put a halt on all of that. Luckily, like this happened, I we, we saw this coming um, at the end of February mm. where, you know, I was having conversations with my customers that were coming into the store and I had just placed this, um, this, a, a large order of, um, tie dyed silks that I was going to be using for all of these, like, you know, the fancy dresses. And I just told my factory, I was like, okay, hold that and let's not produce it. I'd already paid for it. I didn't cancel any orders, you know, and um, mm. I said, we're just going to start working, making cottons, things in cottons that are breathable, wearable, that are comfortable to wear. And we're just going to pause and we're going to figure that out. So I think that the, with with small companies, mm. you know, with the opportunities that we have to market ourselves like online through social Um, you know, for me, it's been really micro and very local by working specifically with, you know, I have quite a large customer base that's very local. That's like in person, we get email and text and all of that. And I've been able to ask them specifically, what is it that you want? Whereas, um, and I think that's Mm -hmm. the great thing about being small and local and having those conversations with your customers where you can provide the most service and really figure out what people need at this time. And if you already have the values of doing it right, it's a lot easier to do it right in the way that your customers want you to do it. But, um, and I also just wanna to return to something that you said about, you know, about Nike and Adidas and the sneaker companies where It just, it's just become part of the DNA. It's like, not like Nike and Adidas are like, yes, we're a sustainable fashion company. It's just, it's just what you do. And as a smaller designer, when I started coming, I really branded myself as someone in relief to the larger industries. Like, Hey, like this is a place where you can come and know that everything that comes out of this store has been made consciously and meaningfully. But I look forward to the day where I just get to make well thought out clothing because instead of saying oh and it's sustainable it's just i'm just really right because everybody's everybody's doing doing it it. it's just (laughs) the way that you do it it's just the way you do it you know Right, right so
0: i think there is sort of a mind shift that's happening that it was kind of already on its way i think the idea of processed foods is probably the beginning of like what are what else are we processing and what else is bad for us but i think the ideas that you've put forth to people who though to you it may seem like a small group is influential enough to their friends and everyone around them to go, well, you know there's another way you don't have to actually go to h and m you could buy this other thing and while it may cost you a little more if it's made with like minded people and it lasts a little longer, maybe that's a good thing um, and i think I think that is happening um not just with you but because there's more of Swathis out there that didn't exist when you first started.
1: Yeah, I mean- You're working. And I'm so happy that there's so many people (laughs) coming in and joining in. I mean, I think Mm. um, I'd love for your listeners to know this, but in terms of all of our basic needs, you know, what our basic needs are, food, shelter, gas, oil, electricity, clothing. The only one that has gone down in price is clothing since the early 90s. (laughs) And I think it's really important for people to know that, you know, in the 1960s the 1970s, like families were spending upwards of like 10 to 15% of their annual income on clothing their family. And um, and here we are, you know, this mindset that you talk about, like, we don't have to go to the Gap or, well, you know, or H&M or Zara and buy, you know, four of the same thing in different colors. We can just buy one of those things right. for more money and it's just going to last for much longer. And we're going to know that it's been, right. we're going to know that it's had a positive impact on somebody's life. I'm...
0: Um, um curious about when 10 years from now people are digging through their parents old clothing if things still last the way we used to be able to go through and oh look at this old levi's jacket that you know was well made or this even t-shirt that was well made i can still wear it um going to be a lot of product that doesn't cut the money. yeah
1: if it doesn't get to the landfill first <laughs> but it's true. This, I think true
0: this is true this is where we're, we're, we'll <laughs> we're, we're exactly <laughs> it,
1: it's true i mean and the with the um and i don't know if you know this but this is i found this very interesting that our largest waste export is clothing so we export clothing mm. more than any other country to throw it away in other countries because we don't have enough places to put it here in the United States, <laughs> Put it. which what happens in that so, situation is really, it also kills local manufacturing because they're getting free clothing from the United States.
0: I, I've read about that. I've read so, about that. <laughs> so they can't even wear the stuff that they're making because... M-
1: Right. So the ethics of throwing our clothes away, we have to think about how do we throw away less? We consume less. If we consume less, we'll throw away less, which means there'll be less clothing exported to other countries and we can help, you know, maintain local manufacturing. Right.
0: But that definitely goes into like a larger, whether it's education or mindset, of people have to not want to go to get so much that they're not going to actually value or use. But then that comes with the, they'll probably end up paying more for that thing that's longer term. And I think, sadly, that's uh, what did somebody say? It's like, it's, that's why there's programming, is that the industry has to communicate that to the consumer. It's not just gonna be the consumer's gonna wake up and go, we should probably stop doing that. That has to be something that is learned because I don't think it's... Again, the light was on when I walked into the room, I'm supposed to buy five shirts a year as opposed to why don't I just keep the one I had? I think that's gonna be something which I give you a lot of credit for. I think you teach in a way that um, doesn't scare people, doesn't put them off or come across as like over the top. Uh, The example I always use is that um, there was a time when being a vegan seemed sort of like over the top and there were people who were like um, uh, wild about it and you couldn't do anything but you yeah. had to be vegan you had to be vegan and now the rebranding is yeah. plant-based it's kind of the same thing except they slightly changed it and what's happened is when it was try to be vegan like it went years of you had to go a certain like grocery store and talk to the people who you didn't really connect with and they would yell at you about going to any other store and now, the bodega across the street, it took milk three years to collapse on the fact that now there's 30 kinds of milk. Like, I'm lactose intolerant, and I can go to the bodega across the street and get pea milk, I can get rice milk, I can get almond, milk, like, which all may have their own issues, but now it's not under the guise of, you have to. So I think, again, it comes under, like, that education. I think you're one of the people who there's sort of a easier conversation because the facts are the facts, and you do a good job of delivering those facts without scaring me.
1: You know, you go from vegan to plant-based, and I mean, this gets back to so much of what we do in our respective industries, you know, you, on um, you know, the sportswear and sneaker design, and, you know, and me and, you know, on the fashion side of things, where um, just, the way that things are presented and the way they're they messaged is is so important. And um sometimes like I get I can I can get a little irritated by like, can't you just like listen to the content of what I'm saying versus like, the <laughs> way I'm saying it? You know? But when you put it like that, it really is so much about, you know, how can I how can I include you in the conversation? Right, right. And um I think that's I think that's really important and You know so i appreciate you saying that
0: very cool very cool so last question for you which i asked every uh guest if you could go back and tell young swati one thing that would you know help in your creative pursuits what would it be any point in time
1: yes simplify focus Mm. (laughs) Focus on just one or two things, Swati, and just get really, <laughs> really good at it. Get really, really good at it. And find people that that you really love and who are doing great things and get to know them and watch them, mm. you know, and find ask them what their mistakes were.
0: <laughs> Interesting.
1: So, at what yeah, point do you think you things. started...
0: At what point do you think you heard yourself say that? <laughs>
1: um, I feel like I was a couple of years in because I didn't go to fashion school, you know? I mean, I've taken classes here and there at FIT, but I've really learned everything on the job in my career. Mm. And um, And so I am not one of those people that, you know, had mentors, you know, early mm. on. But I've been able to find my mentors in places. And I feel whenever I start, Um, there's a departure from, from, you know, making good clothing and making it responsibly. Whenever I depart from that, (laughs) things get a little more complicated.
0: Interesting, interesting. You get off the path, (laughs) it gets kind of rocky.
1: Exactly. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, um, And and I still, and I, I continue to live by that. You know, when I get a little, when I feel like things are getting a little distracted, I just try to come back my North star and my compass.
0: Nice, So, Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for taking this time to uh, have a nice conversation about some nice things. Changing the world, um, one garment at a time, that's what you're doing, uh, and minds at a time. We'll get to the education part uh, on our next conversation. But before we go, um, you wanna tell us where we can go purchase some of your uh, simpler goods that you'll be making?
1: Absolutely. You can visit um, com. That's B-like boy, H-O-O-M-like mark, dot com, And you will see on our website that we, um, we also sell clothing of other great ethical fashion brands along with our own brand. Um, and you can learn a little bit more about our process, what we do. You can read our 2020 sustainability and ethics report to really get a little more information about um what makes us who we are and i just want to say thank you so much jeff for um for inviting me to this this is i i love our conversations
0: so thanks for listening to our conversation. we hope you picked up a few gems along the way for more talks content uh conversations around design and creativity and what we're doing in the future Head on over to Good Things. That's gs. You can find us over at Facebook, Instagram, and on our website. Um, we hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks.